let's think of this like we're making a stew. And let's start with a few scriptures to form the base of that stew. And like read them and kind of like let them soak in the background as we toss in a few other ingredients. And then maybe we can circle back in the end. Sound okay? All right. So if you've got your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 6 and 7. Matthew 6 and 7. I really like these chapters. Uh, really, over the last few years, they've been some of my favorite things to read because it's just straight up Jesus downloading all his really important thoughts. So I'm going to read, like, I'm just going to hit, like, five real quick ideas that he kind of rifles through. First is Matthew six nineteen. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Such a direct statement. Where moths and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where moths and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I want you to remember that. That's one of the five. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Number two of the five, Matthew 6.25. Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, about your body, what you'll wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or stow away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you much more valuable than they? So that's the second thing. Don't worry about your life what you'll eat, drink, your body, what you'll wear. The third is a little bit of a curveball. Matthew 6, 32. For the pagans run after these things. The pagans run after these things. Obviously they do. What, what else there is there to run after? What to eat, what to drink, what to wear, all, the, all that comes with experiencing our life. So that's three. Here we are, we got, don't store up for yourselves treasures. Don't worry about your life. The pagans run after that stuff. Number four is verse 33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you as well. So don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Don't worry about your life. The pagans run after that stuff. Seek first his kingdom. Last one. Chapter 7, verse 14. Small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So there's our, there's our five ideas. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Don't worry about your life. The pagans run after that stuff. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. All right, you with me so far? That one verse, like, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. I always like to think about what does the kingdom of God really mean? What, what, what do you picture when you think of the kingdom of God? Is it like a place specifically? 
Let me tell you what I've written down. In my imagination, the kingdom of God is like the coolest thing ever. It's like the secret universe that exists among us. Only it's hidden behind the veil of our senses. It's tingling in the air like the matrix, but nobody can see it who isn't a member of it. And even if you are a member of it, you can still only see it in glimpses and flashes if you're living your life like everybody else. It's only if you devote yourself to chasing it that you can see it every day. At first, you begin to see regular things like cars, are the faces of people with a whole new palette of colors. But the colors aren't regular colors. They're more like ideas of ineffable destiny that sort of shimmer like a hologram. For example, the colors on the faces of most people just in everyday life are, are colors like anguish with the possibility of joy, longing with the possibility of hope, Rejection with the possibility of endless love. You get the idea. Meanwhile, all the earthly shiny objects like mansions and race cars become the hollow colors of absence and emptiness. And that's just the beginning. If you continue seeking the kingdom of God, pretty soon everything you do has a value quotient where your house looks like a pile of rust and your raging alcoholic neighbor Looks like a shining golden ray beckoning you toward him like he's a magnet or the essence of some eternal treasure that merely needs dusting off and is somehow part of your personal inheritance. And then, when you begin to live behind the veil, every day you start making eye contact with those few others who are living behind the veil as well. And you only need to see their eyes twinkle to feel a surge of electricity in your body, like you've instantly connected with a worldwide network of long-lost relatives who share your DNA to serve a greater love. Anyway, that's what I think of. Um, you don't need to applaud. 103 years ago, in 1916, just about the time uh, the student volunteer movement was hitting its full stride. You familiar with the student volunteer movement? We'll get to it. 103 years ago, 1916, student volunteer movement's hitting its full stride. Hundreds of young American college students were burning their degrees, kissing their sweethearts goodbye, boarding boats bound for the corners of the world where people had never heard the name of Jesus. Right at that moment, a great American poem, poet wrote a great American poem that you have heard before. A poem reflecting on the profound ramifications of a simple choice, like what a path to take can have on your future. You've heard it. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Sound familiar from English class? Robert Frost, The Road Not Taken. This was written in 1916. At the same time, 500 students were packing up 
and going overseas. The poem goes on to say that he took the path that fewer people had taken, and in doing so, he told himself that one day he'd come back and take the other path. But then he says this key line, yet knowing that way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. He was acknowledging the reality that in our lives, oftentimes we make a choice, we choose a path, we begin a direction, and what that means is that it's going to preclude a lot of other alternative paths that we could have taken, right? Isn't that so true? The choices that we make, the paths that we choose, oftentimes they mean that we can't come back and take the other path. Okay, let's just take a temperature on our soup. Is that still, soup stock still warming in the background? Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Don't worry about your life, what you will eat, drink, what you will wear. The pagans run after those things. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added. Small is the gate, narrow is the road. Sorry, I do this a lot, you know. <laughs> last night, last night I, I met an old friend, one of my closest friends, old high school buddy. We met for late night appetizers at the distillery. His name's Tom. We shared a locker in 10th grade. As long as I've known Tom, he's had a steady clarity about what path to take in life. Do you ever know anybody like that? just knows what they're supposed to do. Are you one of those people? If so, I hate you. <laughs> Does it ever make you jealous? So Tom's brilliant. Uh, he was taking apart computers and putting them back together before he was 12 years old. He got a 1570 on his SAT. He, he was valedictorian of our class, and it wasn't close. He always knew he wanted to be an engineer. And for the last 20 years, he's been taking that journey. He went to RIT, graduated at the top of that class, took a job at a top American technology company, served faithfully, been promoted, promoted, promoted. He leads a team of over 60 engineers. Just last week, brought a brand new security product to market. He's one of the most trusted leaders in the company, meets face-to-face -face with the president of the multi-billion dollar company when the president needs frank advice. So last night, he told me, over nachos, um, that all along the way, his biggest battle has been the question of whether he's doing the right thing with his life. And when I hear that, it baffles me, because when I look at his life, and the integrity and the humility that he's lived, the way he's always sought to honor the Lord, to listen and obey, to hold his plans loosely, to sacrificially love his wife and children, to share Jesus with his co-workers, to start discipleship groups among them, to teach them how to be men who serve Jesus in a culture that serves self. It's so clear to me that my friend Tom is seeking first the kingdom of God. It's just, he radiates it. But he said there's two thoughts that come at him. The first is the idea that if he was really seeking the kingdom of God, that he'd be a missionary or sell everything and move to the inner city and minister to the poor. So that's at one pole. And then at the other pole is the idea that if, if he was truly a talented engineer, 
he would have gone to Silicon Valley at the turn of the millennium and helped a tech startup make $10 billion. And those two lies war at him and attack his mind. And when he steps back, he knows those two thoughts are false. But he's 20 years into faithfully walking out his kingdom calling, and the enemy still wants to press those two buttons. If you were really seeking the kingdom of God, your life would look specifically like this. And, you know, you're kind of a failure because you don't have the real status and cash that other top engineers like you have. Have you ever felt like if you were really spiritual, your life would look like X? And then on the other poll, have you ever felt like if you could chase whatever you wanted, it, it would look like Y? Why am I telling you Tom's story? Because some of you in this room, God has called you to seek first his kingdom in the marketplace. And you may always battle a lie that you're spiritually less than because you aren't poor and you aren't in full-time ministry. I guess what we're talking about today is the idea of calling. Do you think Tom is called to be an engineer? Do you think I am called to be a missionary? Do you think you need to be called in order to take a risk for the kingdom of God. So 30 years before Robert Frost wrote that poem about the road not taken in the yellow wood, during the school year of 1885 and 1886, there were two college kids, Robert and Grace Wilder. You ever heard of Robert and Grace Wilder? They were brother and sister. They'd grown up as missionary kids in India, and they'd seen the need there. And they decided that every night during that academic school year, 1885-1886, they would pray that God would raise up a thousand new American missionaries to emerge from the colleges. Robert was a seminary student at Princeton, and he and Grace started inviting five of Robert's fellow students over on Sunday afternoons to study foreign missions while Grace prayed in the adjacent room. I think at that time it wasn't cool to, like, hang out in mixed groups in living rooms. Now, something incredible is about to happen, and my question to you is this. Do you think that when Robert and Grace started praying every night and doing this Sunday afternoon study thing, that they were called to it, or that they just happened to care passionately about something that Jesus also really cared about? And if it's the second one, I wonder what kind of things that you could do to serve the Lord with no clear calling whatsoever. Okay, let's check on that soup real quick. Is that still, still warming in the background? Matthew 6, 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth 
where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there is your heart. Don't worry about your life, about what you're going to eat, about what you're going to drink, about what you're going to wear. Your heavenly Father knows you need those things. He's got them. The pagans run after those things. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All those things will be added as well. Small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few find it. I don't know whether the wilder kids had a sign in the sky to pray or they just wanted to, but based on my own experience, I'm guessing that they just wanted to based on what they saw and experienced in India as like missionary kids. The reason I'm making that leap, have I ever told you how I ended up as a missionary? It sure was not because I had a prophetic dream in the night. I can tell you that. I was sitting on a couch in my boxers, this is Virginia Beach, watching football one Sunday afternoon uh, in Virginia where I was studying to get my master's degree in government because I was worried about my life, what I would eat, what I would drink, what I would wear, what other people would think of me, and because I wanted to store up for myself treasures on earth. Those praise of man, status, power. I mean, I would not have said any of that or even really perceived it lurking beneath my stated goal of changing the world for Jesus by being a Christian in politics. But it was lurking. So any other way, I'm sitting there on my couch. Toby looks at me on the couch. You know Toby Cavanaugh? Yeah. Toby looks at me on the couch. We were roommates. And he just, out of the blue, just the middle of like third down and six. Hey, when we graduate, you want to do like a year of missions or something first? Just totally random. And I thought about it for like two seconds. And I promise you that none of my thoughts were, God has called me to the nations. Or, yes, Lord, I surrender all. It was more like, I'd love to spend a year with my best friend overseas. And, yeah, God cares about missions, doesn't he? That would be a cool way to put him in front of, like, my ambitions or whatever. It was not a spiritual decision. Uh, but I blurt out, like, sure. And Toby's like, where do you want to go? And I'm like, what about China? He's like, all right, let's do it. And then he basically had to drag my butt over hurdle after hurdle. Like, Matt, did you get your passport? Matt, did you fill out the Elam Fellowship paperwork? Did you set up a bank account? Did you sign over power of attorney? But somehow, we got there. We put our boots on the ground without much spiritual clarity. And when we got there, the call became clear. All our Chinese friends spoke English. Literally, like, their third question when talking to us was like, can you please tell me about Jesus? I want to know about Jesus. Like, within two weeks, we're baptizing them in our bathtub. Like, should we be doing this? Like, is this okay? Like, we're under the cover of darkness, smuggling underground church leaders to and from our apartment. We're like, is this really happening? What's going on? And in, and in the midst of this ex radical experience where I'm seeing and tasting and experiencing what God is doing on a frontier, I'm like, whoa, there is nothing more strategic that's happening on earth right now. How can we all not be doing that? And then the burden grows. 
Don't worry about your life, about what you can eat, drink, what you're going to wear. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Seek first the kingdom of God. So in the summer of 1886, Robert Wilder, after a year of praying with his sister, gets invited to attend the first Bible conference ever conducted for college students in North America. It's going to be in Massachusetts, Mount Vernon. He debates going. Um, missions isn't really on the docket as like a subject matter of the conference. But his sister, Grace, says, you got to go. I, I believe our prayers for a missionary awakening are going to be answered here. God's going to raise up like 100 students who are going to volunteer for missionary service. So he goes. He arrives on July 6th, Mount Vernon. Mount Herman, I'm sorry. Isn't George Washington Mount Vernon? Yeah, my bad. 251 college students from 89 colleges across America. So what does he do? He starts an afternoon missions prayer meeting during the conference because there's nothing really going on for missions. Four people show up, then 14, then 21. <laughs> and Robert's having all of them sign a declaration. It says, we, the undersigned, declare ourselves willing and desirous God permitting to go to the unevangelized portions of the world. He's making everybody sign this. I'm thinking not all those people were called. They were just being like, all right, I'll, I'll, I guess so. Soon everybody at the conference is talking about missions. At lunches, at swim breaks, while they're hiking in the woods. Within 10 days, Wilder, young Robert Wilder from... Princeton persuades D.L. Moody, who's running the conference, to schedule a missionary programming on two Friday evenings. At the second meeting, a bunch of students that have been doing his prayer meetings present the spiritual needs of ten nations, and a hush falls over the crowds. It breaks into tiny prayer groups. Students start consecrating themselves to Christ's lordship and emissions. And by the last day of the conference, 99 students have signed this missionary declaration. And during the farewell service, one last person slips through the doors and signs up. They become known as the Mount Hermon 100. There are 100 people that have said, God willing, what is that? <laughs> like, if the Lord lets me, I'm going to go spend my life in missions. God permitting to go to the unevangelized portions of the world. This is crazy, right? So the following school year, Robert and a friend from Princeton, because you got to have a buddy to do this kind of stuff with, travel to 162 colleges. One school year, 162 colleges. Robert and his buddy on the road. They get 2,100 more people to sign this declaration. 2,100 people signing away their lives. I'm going to go serve God in missions. Not all of these people were called to be missionaries. But what are they doing? They're like, you know what? I'm just going to seek first the kingdom of God. You know, I'm not going to worry about my life. I'm not going to store up treasure here. I, I'm, just, I'm just going to do this. Why not? Isn't that cool? I love that. One guy named Samuel Zwemer was one of them. If there's time, I'll read you a few paragraphs from a message he spoke. 
Two years later, this surge of commitments forms into an organization called the Student Volunteer Movement. SVM, Student Volunteer Movement. Their rally cry becomes the evangelization of the world in this generation. Their challenge to other students is not pray for me, support me, it's come with me. And year by year, over the next three decades, these students prepare and go to the mission field. In 1916, the same year that Robert Frost wrote that poem, The Road Not Taken, 500 SVM volunteers sailed overseas to become missionaries. A historian of the SVM movement reported that more than 20,500 college students who signed that declaration reached the mission field by 1945. The greatest missionary movement in world history. That's crazy. Let's check in on our stew. Matthew 6.19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Do not worry about your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. The pagans run after these things. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only if you find it. You don't need a clear call to take a great risk for the kingdom of God. You don't need a clear call to take a great risk for the kingdom of God. Sometimes we think in the absence of a clear call, I'll pursue a career. I'll buy this house. I'll marry that person. I'll go into debt to achieve this goal. But why wouldn't we flip it on its head? My friend Tom is the one who needs the clear call. He needs God to faithfully remind him, yes, Tom, this is what I made you for. This is what seeking first the kingdom looks like in your life. And some of you have that clarity, and if you do, don't let anything shake you off it. But if you don't, if you're like me, if you're a bundle of uncertainty and mixed motivations, you really can't go wrong by taking a radical action step to put the kingdom of God first. It might defy cultural wisdom about education, about career marketability, about money in the bank, about equity in the American dream. Your family may not love it. Your church may wish you'd stay to serve on the worship team. You may hear well-meaning people ask you pointed questions like, are you sure you're called to do that? No, I'm not. I'm just doing it. Or, but what about all the needs here? Shouldn't we take care of those first? But you know what? This is biblical. If the Apostle Paul waited for clarity, the Macedonian call may never have happened. You know the Macedonian call, Acts 16, verses 6 through 10, where Paul has this dream, and there's this man from Macedonia in the night begging him, come, preach the gospel to us. Do you know what was happening in the verses immediately prior to that? He was banging down the door trying to get into Asia. Not Macedonia, Asia. Over and over again, and the Holy Spirit kept preventing him. Paul, the apostle, did not have clarity on the details of what he was supposed to do. All he knew was that his Lord and Savior, his King of Kings, wanted him to advance the kingdom of God. To lay down his life so that others could know. To seek first his kingdom. Right? 
Something underneath was pushing Paul. A deeper magic, a deeper understanding of what calling is. Calling is not necessarily a role or a place or a job description. It's a call to the person of Jesus. It's a call to the person of Jesus to love him more, to serve him more, to care about the things he cares about, to increasingly care about them more and more every day as you get to know him better. This is what happens when you're in love with someone. Some of you know. You stop wanting what you want, and you start wanting what they want. I can tell you this because I actually want the dishes to be done in my house and the floor swept. And I do it over and over and over. This is just a symptom of my love for Danny. It's grown into a passion of mine. I'm kind of a freak about it. But you can ask Toby when we were roommates in Virginia. This was not a passion of mine. I love her. And she loves a clean kitchen. And now I love a clean kitchen. Imagine if my wife could tell me, Matt, don't worry about your life about food, about clothes. Don't store up treasure. Just seek the things I care about. Everything's going to be okay. Jesus is saying that to us. Don't worry about your life. Don't chase those things. You know what they are. Chase my Father's kingdom. Chase righteousness. Don't sit around and wait for a calling. You're not called to be a pastor or a businessman. You're called to me. Burn for what I burn for, and then take crazy risks. You know what I think the most amazing thing about this liberty not to have a narrow calling is? The freedom to be radical and riskily passionate about the kingdom of God is the, pass the possibility of doing something world-shaking together. That's one of my main takeaways from the SVM, that 20,000 kids, many of whom were not called in the strictest sense of the word, became missionaries because they rallied behind a God-sized vision. It's noon. Sorry. We ran out of time. Do you remember Robert Wilder, 1887? He's visiting all these colleges. One of the 162 he visits is called Hope College. He meets a senior named Samuel Zwemer. Zwemer is one of the 2100 that signs the card. Within a couple years, he goes to Arabia. He ends up serving as a missionary to the Muslim world for 39 years. In 1911, he wrote an article called The Glory of the Impossible. I'm going to read it, uh, just a few sections of you now. I'll try to get us done in two minutes. I want you to reflect on the burden that is obviously brimming out of this guy and how over a hundred years later it still is like awesome. And just reflect on the idea, would, would this passion and burden ever been tapped if two missionary kids didn't become convinced that the world needed a thousand new American missionaries and started doing crazy stuff to make it happen? All right, here goes. Ready? Samuel Zwemer. He meets Robert Wilder when he's a senior. He says, The challenge of the unoccupied fields of the world is one 
to great faith and therefore to great sacrifice? Does it really matter how many die or how much money we spend in opening closed doors and in occupying different fields if we really believe that missions are warfare and that the king's glory is at stake? War always means blood and treasure. Our only concern should be to keep the fight aggressive and to win victory regardless of cost or sacrifice. The unoccupied fields of the world must have their cavalry before they can have their Pentecost. The unoccupied fields of the world await those who are willing to be lonely for the sake of Christ. To the pioneer missionary, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ to the apostles when he showed them his hands and his feet. As my Father has sent me, even I send you. What is it but the glory of the impossible? Who would naturally prefer to leave warmth and comfort of hearth and home for the love of family circle to go after a lost sheep whose cry we have faintly heard in the howling of the tempest? Yet such is the glory of the task that neither home ties nor home needs can hold back those who have caught the vision and the spirit of the great shepherd because the lost ones are his sheep and he has made us his shepherds. We must bring them back. There's nothing more pathetic than the way in which missionaries unlearn the love of old home to die in their native land. How vulgar the common patriotism seem besides this in, beside this inverted homesickness, this passion of a kingdom which has no frontiers and no favored race, the passion of a homeless Christ. The unoccupied fields, therefore, are a challenge to all whose lives are unoccupied that, by that which is highest and best, whose lives are occupied only with the weak things or the base things that don't count. There are eyes that have never been illuminated by a great vision, minds that have never been gripped by an unselfish thought, hearts that have never thrilled with a passion for another's wrongs, hands that have never grown weary or strong in lifting a great burden. To such the knowledge of these Christless millions in lands yet unoccupied should come like a new call from Macedonia, a startling vision of God's will for them, an adventure of some proportions that is not uncommonly all that a young man needs to determine and fix his manhood's powers. If they're is a more heroic test for the powers of manhood than pioneer work in the mission field. Here is the opportunity for those who at home may never find elbow room for their latent capacities, who ne never find adequate scope elsewhere for all their powers of their minds and their souls. There are hundreds of Christian college men and women who expect to spend a life practicing law or some other trade for a livelihood, who yet have the strength and talent enough to enter these unoccupied fields. They are making a living. They might be making a life. Whew, it's crazy. I think the Lord wants to redig this well. And with our lives and with our sacrifices, we don't need a sign in the sky to do it. We can do this if we will. We can take up that cause again, the evangelization of the world in our generation. But the main takeaway I want you to have is this. Don't worry about your life. Don't store up treasure here on earth. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. He's going to take care of you. He's going to add all the rest. Can I pray for you guys? Father, I pray that you would make these young men and women bold in their walk 
give them the courage not to wait for a sign in the sky, not to get sidelined by the shiny things, but to take risks for the sake of your kingdom, to seek first your kingdom, and to trust that you've got them, that you'll take care of them. Father, I pray for a collaborative spirit, a teamwork, a common vision that you would speak and that others would say, yeah, I'll do that, I'll do that, I'll do that. And that there would be that, that echo of the student volunteer movement where people would rally around a cause, not because they're initially burdened for it, but because you're burdened for it and they're willing to get on board. I pray for that kind of anointing, that you would redig that well in this generation and that hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of young American college students would once again forsake the American dream and spend their lives serving you radically in the harvest field. In your name, amen.